God's grace, it's something that is hard for us to fully grasp, I think, until we experience it personally. Uh, humans typically struggle to understand that which is uncommon to them anyway. It can be hard for us to understand other cultures. Praise the Lord. Yes, thank you. It's a Pentecostal little girl there. It's hard for us sometimes to understand other cultures because our upbringing is different than theirs. We don't always understand how some people can think the way that they do because we haven't experienced what they've experienced. So generally speaking, where there's little common experience, there's little common understanding. Uh, when I was in seminary in England, I would go through the cafeteria line at the, at the school every day for lunch. And the guy at the end of the counter, the last guy to get your tray, he would dip a ladle in this giant uh, pot full of this green hot slime. And he would dump it all over your food. And they have, would have usually French fries, part of the meal. They call them chips over there. And he would ladle that stuff all over your fries and all over your food. And so the first day, I was in line going through. And I was watching this happen to everybody in front of me. And I was horrified. I just thought, I, I don't know what that is. And I'm already, I've never been overseas. This is crazy and so when I the guy gets my tray and I said hey hey man and he looks up at me I said hold the green stuff and he said what and I said I didn't want any of the green stuff and he said mushy peas and I said I, I don't know what you just said but I don't want any of the green stuff on my food he said you want them on the side and I said no I don't want them anywhere just leave them in the pot. Well, it turns out in Britain, they take green peas and they smash them up and they put some things in them till it's like this pasty slime. It's called mushy peas. And it's a, it's a traditional British cuisine. And so people are trying to explain that to me. And I'm trying to explain that I'm not from Britain. So, hey, guess what? It's not part of my traditional cuisine. And we had this little confrontation every day because the guy was kind of offended that I didn't want his mushy peas. He was proud of those and I wasn't going to eat them. Poor guy, you know, it was like for the life of him, he couldn't understand why I didn't want smashed up green peas dumped all over my food. And I couldn't understand why he would ever think that was a good idea. But obviously we grew up differently, right? Where there's little common experience, there is little common understanding. And so it is with grace. God's grace is something that is difficult for us to fully grasp until we experience it. And even then, I don't know if we completely realize the comprehensive, uh, all-encompassing nature of His grace for us. But the fact remains, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've experienced salvation in Him, you have been overwhelmed by His grace even if you don't fully recognize that in your own life yet. And so today I hope that through this study, we can make the reality of His grace just a little more perceptible, you know, a little, a little more evident in our lives. Because once you start to become altogether aware of the depth and completely enveloping, saturating nature of His grace for you, it will change your perspective of other people and of your own life as well. 
And it's not simply for the sake of awareness that we explore this subject of grace together. There is, in fact, much more to it than that. Because we have been overwhelmed by grace. In Luke, in 1248, uh, Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, we're all, as believers, responsible for what we do with what he's given to us. And of course, that means things like gifts and abilities and, and talents and money and resources. We're all going to be held to account for what we've done in this life with what he's blessed us with. And that begins with grace. And again, if you're a believer, you've been extravagantly lavished with God's grace. And that means that we're now responsible for what we do with that gift of grace. So becoming fully aware of the grace afforded to us uh, not only stands to sober us to the reality of just how good God is and, and what a wonderful reality to behold, but it also instructs us in the way of our own culpability, our own uh, responsibility and how we handle that grace. And to be sure, there are responsibilities for us that go along with the grace that's been given to us so freely. So Let's jump back into our story where we left off last week. And we probably uh, won't get all the way through chapter 9 today. But we'll start on verse 1 and we'll work our way from there. We're working our way through uh, the book of Acts for those of you who haven't been here. Uh, last week we talked about being relentless for Christ. And we read about uh, the early church and the fact that they were relentless Christians. And they had to be because there was absolutely no room at this point in the development of the church to straddle that proverbial fence. You were either in or you were out. Because being a Christian at that point in history could and often did mean an early death. Because at this point, because of Saul of Tarsus, he was brutally persecuting and arresting and killing Christians in mass. So these early followers of Christ had to be totally committed to the call of God before them. And then we get to chapter 9. That was all in chapter 8. We get to chapter 9 and something changes. There is a seminal moment, a shifting in the activity against the church that changes everything. Okay, so let's read it together. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay? So Saul's persecution of the church at this point has reached a fevered pitch. And he isn't simply persecuting those Christians who are openly spreading the gospel in public. He's going into people's homes now and dragging them out of their house off to prison, which we saw in chapter 8. And now he's actually requested and been granted extradition authority to travel to other cities and actively hunt down Christians so that he can bring them back to Jerusalem uh, for punishment. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian, describes Saul at this point. He calls him Saul the terrorist. And interestingly enough, as these ancient languages that the scriptures are written in 
do such an amazing job of creating word pictures uh, through their language. It's much more expressive language than our own today. There's quite a picture here painted in these first two verses to describe what is happening in the church. First of all, the word breathing in verse 1, when it says Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing there is the Greek word empneo, and it means to breathe in or to inhale. So literally, this verse is saying that Paul was breathing in threats and murder against the disciples instead of breathing out threats and murder, which is what we'd more likely expect in a description like this. And so breathing in threats and murder against the church seems to be a bit of an odd way of describing Saul's disposition here. But the image that's being communicated in this verse that's intended is one of a a raging animal that breathes in deeply right before it blows out its breath during a charge, like a, like a fighting bull in a ring that breathes in deeply right before he snorts out his breath and charges toward his enemy. So it's quite a picture. And there's no mistake about it. This wasn't Saul simply fulfilling some kind of religious duty for the synagogue. This was a man so full of seething hatred for those followers of Jesus that he was literally breathing in evil intent. He was hell-bent on destroying them all just before he charges forward into Damascus to continue uh, this assault on the believers. And then the word way in verse 2, you'll notice is capitalized. That is the word hados in the ancient Greek, and it means a traveler's way. Or a journey, a way of life. I love that description of the Christian faith here because it doesn't simply describe a belief system that we kind of ascend to mentally. It describes an entire way of life. The journey that we're all on together as followers of Jesus Christ. And that was an accepted term that the early Christians commonly used to describe themselves. They identified themselves as followers of the way. So here we have these believers on a journey of faith, completely devoted to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being hunted by a wild, murderous beast who's about to charge into Damascus and take out all the Christians that he can. Okay, so let's see what happens next. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Okay, Saul, bent on death and destruction with all the authority that he needs from the high priest himself, is charging toward Damascus, and something, or, or someone rather, stops him dead in his tracks. If you think about that charging bull, or uh, a rabid, crazed animal in the woods, charging at its prey, what has the power to stop it cold? Only something stronger than itself. Okay, this wasn't some apparition, some uh, shadow of the Holy One. This wasn't an angel. 
that appeared before Saul. This was Jesus Christ himself, far more powerful than all of the evil working inside of Saul, stopping him right where he stood. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll notice that the parts of the verses 4 through 6, where it says that Jesus answered Saul, those are in red. This is Jesus speaking directly to Saul. And furthermore, he was doing it in person. In other words, Saul didn't pass out and have a dream that Jesus was speaking to him. Uh, this wasn't some sort of existential outer body experience as Saul was meditating. He wasn't having a vision while in a trance, as we see with Peter in chapter 10. This was Jesus Christ speaking directly to Saul in person. And just to further make that point, it says that the other people there with Saul were speechless because they heard the voice as well. And then later there are several accounts in other passages in Acts and in 1 Corinthians and Galatians where Paul is looking back and describing this event in hindsight. And he specifically says in many of those places that he saw Jesus. So this was an intensely personal, very real face-to-face -face meeting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then verse 7 says that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Well, if they heard Jesus speaking, why didn't they also see him? In chapter 26, when Paul is recounting this event, he describes the light as being brighter than the sun. And so it makes sense that he was temporarily blinded. He, he does say in chapter 22 that the others saw the light, but it also says back in chapter 26 that they all fell down on the ground. We know that Saul was the only one being addressed here. Surely his gaze into the glory of Jesus Christ at that moment was unique from the others there, who it sounds like were probably curled up on the ground with their heads in the dirt in fear. So why didn't they see exactly what Paul saw? Probably because had they looked into the glory of Jesus Christ as Paul did, they would have been blinded as well. And verse 8 Describing what happened after the encounter says they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Somebody had to be able to see to lead the rest of the journey to Damascus, right? And so Saul has this very personal encounter with Jesus and the others uh, there saw and heard just enough to validate what had happened, but nothing to the extent of what uh, Paul experienced as the message was intended for him directly. Okay. Now then, as we continue to read the story, what we see next is astounding evidence, really uh, shocking evidence of God's grace for the unbeliever. And just to be clear, when we talk about grace, there are many doctrines or theologies about grace amongst Bible scholars and pastors and teachers. And over the centuries, different people have interpreted those doctrines in different ways. And I know that the general population probably doesn't care all that much about doctrinal titles. And to be honest, I'm not sure that Jesus does either. Uh, but what is important is that we're all on the same page in our understanding about those doctrinal or theological issues when we discuss them. Because you can talk about the doctrine of uh, common grace, for instance. And that may mean five different things to five different people. So it's important that we understand what we're talking about. So just for the sake of clarity, there is a type of grace that many have termed common grace. That means different things to different people. But to be clear, when I refer to common grace, I'm referring to the grace that is experienced by all of mankind. The fact that we're all walking around on this earth, breathing, 
and able to experience life because if we got what we deserve, we'd all be in big trouble right now. So all of humanity in that sense experiences the grace of God and that he allows us to live here on earth even though none of us deserves to. And that is what I mean when I say common grace. Okay, Psalm 145, 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. And then in verses 15 through 17, it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. Okay, and then in Matthew 5.45, Jesus, referring to the Father, said, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. All right, so God is gracious. He's merciful. He's giving to all of His creation, and we refer to that as common grace. But this morning, the kind of grace that we're exploring, that we're talking about, is saving grace. It's different. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, and if you're from an Armenian church tradition, which is to say, among other things, that you believe that all people have a free will uh, to either accept or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation, then this saving grace is generally referred to as prevenient grace. That's the grace that God gives us that we did absolutely nothing to earn or deserve that allows us to be able to accept His forgiveness and salvation and restoration. If you're from a Calvinist church tradition, the grace that saves is generally referred to as irresistible grace. Because according to that doctrine, we do not have a free will uh, to choose or reject the gospel. On the contrary, according to uh, the Calvinist tradition, His grace is not resistible. It is irresistible grace that is given by God to those whom He chooses to be saved. Which is part and parcel with the doctrine of divine election. Which again simply means that God chooses who is saved and who isn't. And we have no say in the matter. For whatever it's worth to you, I believe personally in the doctrine of free will. I believe that by His grace we all have the ability to either accept or reject His gospel. And therefore I agree with the doctrine of prevenient grace. So when we talk about saving grace, I'm talking about prevenient grace. I'm also aware that many of you probably don't care what we call it. You're just thankful that we have it. And that's fine. I just want you to have a, a basic understanding that there's a grace common to all mankind. And then there's saving grace that is experienced by believers only. And the latter is what we're studying this morning. Okay? So keep that in mind then as we talk about saving grace. Keep in mind also exactly who is being saved here as we continue to read the story. Remember who Saul was. What he stood for. And what he'd been doing to the followers of Jesus up to this point. This was a man who was as evil as any who had ever lived. All right? So let's see now what God decides to do with this utterly wretched human being. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias says, excuse me, Jesus. Maybe you haven't heard all about this Saul of Tarsus yet, but I have. And I know what he's been up to. And me uh, going to meet with him is definitely a bad idea. And then rather than God obliterating Ananias for arguing with him about what he just commanded him to do, the Lord shows Ananias grace, which we'll come back to in a little later, but he simply reiterates his instructions to Ananias, and he includes a little more information this time. And it would seem entirely ridiculous to us to respond to God in this way, if it wasn't for the fact that we do the exact same thing all the time. How often do we know what we're supposed to do, and we simply don't do it, right? We resist the leading of the Holy Spirit to do the right thing or to talk to that person that we've been at odds with or to restore our marriage that might be broken, to ask someone for forgiveness when we know we should, uh, to change direction uh, for our lives. And when we resist His leading in our life like that, we're doing exactly what Ananias is doing here. Yeah. I know what you're saying, what you want me to do, Jesus, but that's really not what I want to do. So how about we rethink this? And Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.80, he simply repeats his will to Ananias, and instead of pummeling him into the ground, he graciously adds some extra information. Let's read it. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias is probably going, yeah. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So Ananias capitulates. He goes down to the, the street called Straight, uh, which, by the way, still exists today. It's one of the uh, world's oldest continually occupied streets still in existence. Kind of an interesting fact. And he lays his hands on Saul, who is then filled with the Holy Spirit. He regains his sight, he's baptized, and then he eats and he's strengthened. Interestingly enough, this follows what we see in Hebrews 13.8, which we just referenced, and also verse 9. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Although the Hebrews passage here is specifically addressing legalistic doctrines about food, it's still worth noting that Saul was prayed for, he regains his sight. He gets baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, all of which took some time. And he did all of that before he concerned himself at all with food, after not eating or drinking anything for three days prior. Paul chose to be strengthened by God's grace before he was strengthened by food or anything else. This is behavior 
that is diametrically opposed to what Saul would have done three days earlier. This has to be one of the greatest examples that we see in all of Scripture of the saving grace of God turning a life around 180 degrees almost instantly. There is no limit to what God can accomplish in a person's life by His grace. Even among the most sinister of unbelievers, enemies of God's people, His grace is more powerful than all of the evil in the world. And it is able to save the most hopelessly lost among us. Listen, if, if you're not following Jesus Christ today, whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, however far away from God that you may be, there is nothing in your life that has the power to negate the cleansing, restoring, healing, saving grace of Jesus Christ. His love for us is infinitely greater than all of our sin. And because of that, His grace that is available to all of us cannot be defeated by any amount of mistakes and hurts and wounds and bad decisions that we've made. The moment that we yield our will to His, the very moment we accept His offer of saving grace, through faith He immediately accepts us as one of His own and He cleanses us from the inside out. And all of our sin is forgotten. Cast away as if it had never happened. As long as you're breathing, His grace is available to you. You can, you can choose to reject it, but you can't outrun it, you can't outlive it, you can't overcome it. Because His death on the cross was not that fragile. The power of His grace through faith in Christ overcomes all of our sin. His death on the cross wasn't that fragile. Clearly, there is grace for the unbeliever as we see with Paul. And as we continue to read our story today, we see also that there's grace for the believer. We saw it with Ananias through his interaction with the Lord about Saul. We'll see it with Saul now that he's a follower of Christ. And we'll see it with the other believers as well. So let's keep reading, starting on the last half of verse 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, that's a significant line, we'll come back to that, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now we'll just stop there for a moment and point something out. If we just keep reading here in the text, the next verse says, and when he had come to Jerusalem. It's after, right after they lower him down in the basket. You read through that passage, it sounds like Saul was in Damascus. After his conversion, he preached a little in the synagogue about Jesus, got into some trouble with the religious Jews, and escaped to Jerusalem, all in the span of a few days. 
But if you look at Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 1 of that book, starting at verse 15, where he's recounting his conversion experience in the time period that followed that event, we find out something very different. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and that's the apostle Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Now let's look back at Acts chapter 9, verse 23, which we just read. This is before Paul went up to Jerusalem. It says, when many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, okay? So the many days that passed was three years between the time of Paul's conversion and his trip to Jerusalem. And part of that three years, he was in Arabia. And here's where it gets interesting. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Galatians, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was, it, was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul had, had a revelation of Jesus Christ in his gospel. Where and when did all of that happen? Many scholars concur. I think most that that was during Paul's time away in Arabia, which was potentially, again, up to three years. And where in Arabia was Paul during that time of revelation and education and training from the Lord? Can't say with certainty, but again, many scholars have suggested that Paul was at Mount Sinai. And why would he have gone there? First of all, we know that Paul was a zealous religious Pharisee by his own admission. And back in Galatians chapter 1 again, verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The point is, the really passionate, zealous, religious Pharisees of the day studied and knew the scriptures very well. Which means that Saul knew very well the history of events and the significance of Mount Sinai. Moses received his call at the burning bush at Mount Sinai. And then later he met with God and was given instructions for his ministry and the first covenant to God's people at Mount Sinai. God revealed himself there to Moses on Mount Sinai. The prophet Elijah met with God at Mount Sinai and was given instructions there on the mountain for his ministry as well. He was given instructions about the calling of Elisha on Mount Sinai. And God revealed himself to Elijah there as well. These are stories well known to the religious Pharisees. If you want a revelation from God, you go to Mount Sinai. That's where it's all happening. And here's Saul, later to become Paul, of course, who says that Jesus Christ was revealed to him, most likely while he was gone to Arabia. Well, guess what mountain is in Arabia? Mount Sinai. It makes perfect sense for Saul, knowing the history and the significance of that mountain, to travel there for a revelation from God and instructions for his future ministry. And that's not only fascinating, it's fascinating to me and informative to us, but it speaks to the necessity for each one of us to take 
time, even significant amounts of time out of our busy schedules to meet with God for revelation and instruction on how to proceed with our lives. Okay? A five-minute prayer in the mornings and in the evening is great. Reading a few verses of Scripture a day is great. But it is wholly insufficient if we expect significant direction and revelation for our lives and ministry. If we want significant leading and direction from God, we have to spend significant amounts of time with Him. It isn't that we're somehow earning His attention by logging a certain amount of hours on the clock in prayer. It's about strengthening our relationship with Him by spending time with Him. And, and just like any other relationship in our lives, the more time that you spend with that person, the more familiar you become, right? The more you recognize their voice and their desires and their preferences, their, their virtue, their perspective on life and the world. You cultivate relationships with others by spending quality time with them. And it's no different with Jesus Christ. And that can be done by talking. It can be done by listening. And it can be done simply by being together. Sometimes I talk to my wife. Sometimes I listen to my wife. She would probably say not enough. And those are great times. But some of the best times that we share together is when we simply sit there next to each other, side by side, holding hands, saying nothing, just being together. How do you do that with God? <laughs> How do you do that with the Holy Spirit? It's called meditation. Prayer is two-way communication. We talk and we listen. It's critical to our relationship with Him. Meditation is just being in His presence without there having to be any conversation. It's those moments just enjoying His presence in quiet contemplation. Careful consideration of who He is and what He's done and what He means to you. And if you go through and do a study on meditation in the Bible, and we'll talk about it more sometime soon, it's fascinating when you see so many significant characters in Scripture who are awaiting answers or direction or guidance or leading from God. You see them go out and meditate. They would go out and Isaac went out into the field and he meditated. to get away from everybody and just quiet moments contemplating the nature of God. And then his answer would come. Rebecca came. We see it all with David, King David, in the, in the hours of the night, the night watch hours, the middle of the night when everyone was asleep, he would get up and meditate on the Lord and he would get direction for his life. So important when you're seeking, when you're needing an answer, that we take time to meditate. meditate. And it is in those times, those significant times of prayer and meditation that you will often receive that revelation and that guidance and instruction. But we have to commit significant time to that pursuit if we want to experience significant results, okay? Let's keep reading. Paul has been in Arabia and then back to Damascus now, we know, for a total of three years. And after nearly being killed by religious leaders, he escapes to Jerusalem. So verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, back to his home. You can see God's grace being expressed in Saul's life over and over again. Everywhere he goes, people are trying to kill him. And yet the same people that he was hunting down and dragging off to prison and persecuting are the same people who are now protecting him and helping him at every turn. This is the grace of God for the believer. And it confounds me, to be honest, continuously. I've seen God perform miracles and works in the lives of believers and certainly in my own life and in my family that make absolutely no sense whatsoever to those not in the faith. And yet time and again, we see needs are met. People are protected from danger. People are healed. Provision is made in the most unlikely ways. He gives peace in the midst of turmoil, hope in the midst of heartache, unity out of conflict, provision out of poverty, joy out of sorrow, clarity out of confusion, purpose out of ambivalence, and fullness out of emptiness. When you serve Jesus Christ, you serve the one who's full of grace for you. And it's grace to overcome any and every obstacle and difficulty in your life. Just listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. He says, By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. This is a promise for every believer. Okay, listen. No matter how your life is going at this very moment today, you need to understand that God is for you. He is for you and He loves you immeasurably. His love for us is infinitely greater than all of our sins. So if you're not a follower of Christ, there's saving grace available to you. If you are a follower of Christ, there is immeasurable grace extended to you every single moment of your life because, because He's for you. Okay? He's not against you. The more time that we spend with Him, the more grace is realized in our lives. Okay? And finally, and I'll finish up here in our text Today, with one more verse, we see that there's grace for the church. So far, we've been talking about grace extended to individual people. Let's see what Luke teaches us here about grace for the church. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Sounds like a nice little statement about the church, a sort of a, a pleasant way to wrap up this part of the story, but don't miss the significance of what verse 31 is saying. The church, one chapter earlier, was being ravaged, scattered, persecuted, hunted down. Believers were being imprisoned and killed and tortured. In chapter 8, all of that was happening. The church was literally running for her life. And then here, one chapter later, we see the church at peace being built up and she was growing as she walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These are two starkly contrasted pictures of the church from one chapter to the next. And what was the difference? The answer is one man. 
One man was the difference, and more specifically, grace in that one man's life. Before Saul experienced the saving, healing, restoring power of God's grace, the church was running for her life. And after Saul has extended God's grace, the church is at peace in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and growing. You see, you understand the power. God's grace is so powerful that expressed in one man's life, it completely changed the state of the entire church. God's grace is in fact more powerful than anything that can come against us. And this final verse in our text today makes a profound statement that when we extend the grace that's been given to us, even to one person, you never know the power, the result, the ramifications of that act of simply sharing what God has given us, even with one person. And in truth, we're responsible we're going to be held to account for what we do with the gift of grace that's been given us. So, so let me ask you, how do we treat those outside of the church? Those unbelievers who may uh, reject us and everything that we stand for. The answer is we treat them with grace and compassion and love. To the point that we should be known for it. We should be famous in our community and in this town and beyond. For the grace and compassion and love that we extend to those who don't even believe what we believe. We should be famous for that. There's enough division in our culture. The church doesn't need to add to it. You know, we have Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives and rich and poor and black and white and gay and straight. And it seems like everybody's fighting. There's plenty of division in our culture to go around. And I'm not talking about, by the way, condoning sin or sinful lifestyles. In fact, the church needs to tell the truth. The church needs to have a spine when it comes to telling the truth. The gospel is a rock of offense, okay? Without a doubt. But I'm talking about loving people who aren't like us and extending the grace that's been given to us that none of us deserves to every single person that we encounter, no matter what they believe. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And what about those in the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that believers are all members of the same body. So when one of our brothers or sisters is in trouble, maybe they're messing up big time, what do we do? Well, when your hand is injured, you don't cut it off. You mend it. You nurture it. You care for it until it is healed. When someone in the body, in, in this body, is hurting, whether by sin or a sickness or failure or spiritual attack or others coming against them, whatever it is, we don't cut them off because they don't fit in with us anymore. No, we mend. We nurture. We care for them until they're healed and restored to the body. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Peter messed up big time. He denied Christ. Some would have called that blasphemy. And Jesus loved him right back into relationship. What do you do with your own kids? You know, your kid living in your house and he gets involved with illegal drugs. and Now, you don't wink at it and say, you know, I just want to be in relationship with you, so I'm going to pretend it's not happening. Of course not. You confront the sin. You do everything in your power to help him or her overcome that sin. 
and be restored into right relationship in the family. And sometimes that means consequences. Sometimes that means putting them out of the house, right? But we don't stop loving them. We don't stop praying and working for restoration. Even Matthew 18, that whole chapter about discipline in the church and excommunication, which it talks about, is all in the context of trying to bring people back to the church into restoration, restored relationships. It's all about grace. Discipline. It's all about grace. If we didn't care, we wouldn't bother to discipline. The reason we discipline is because of grace, because of love. You understand? This is grace. Amazing grace. And that's our job. To extend that same grace that's been given to each one of us to one another. No matter who it is. What they look like. When they walk in these doors, when we encounter them outside. And if we'll keep doing that, some of you do such a great job. If we'll keep doing that, you just watch him build this church. Amen. Let's pray.